0: Taking your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12. Our reading will be verse 38 through 50. Let us pray again. Our God and Father, we do pray. We ask for your help, O Lord. We ask that you would be glorified in the preaching and reading of your word and in the hearing of it, the believing of it, the obeying of it. We pray that it would be a testimony to your great worth, to your great goodness, to your great kindness, that we have heard your word and that we have taken it into our bosom and that we have been filled with its light and we walk not any longer in the way of the world but in the way of the children of god so lord we pray that you would help us to this end that what we receive now we receive not merely for ourselves but that we might indeed teach others and indeed turn sinners from the way of transgression and in, and be a wise brother a wise sister to others who are in darkness. And Lord, lift us up, we pray, as we each have need and measure. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be, three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person. It passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is God's word. I will be leaving that final paragraph for the opening of the next chapter. But it's good to read it, even so. Well, what have we heard in our reading tonight? Well, we have heard again of this ongoing conflict and confrontation between our Lord and the leaders of the ancient church. The confrontation, as you might recall, began to intensify when the Pharisees accused Jesus' disciples of plucking grain and eating it on the Sabbath. That's back in verse 2 of this chapter. That's the intensification of conflict. After showing the Pharisees that it was indeed lawful for the disciples to do so, the Pharisees then shifted their weight, arguing it was not lawful for Jesus to heal on the Sabbath. Jesus then showed them the exact opposite was true. That's in verse 12. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath, he says. The Pharisees then took their hatred of Jesus to the next level. After seeing him heal a demon-possessed man, the Pharisee said, "It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons." That's verse 24. Well now, in tonight's reading, we have even more malice. Some of the scribes and Pharisees wish to see a sign from Jesus. It's verse 38. And what is our Lord's immediate response? An evil, and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. The Lord does not regard this request for a sign to be some kind of noble neutrality toward him. The sign they are seeking is not in good faith. In fact, when Jesus hears their request, he does not just recognize a small cancerous tumor in the hearts of a few church leaders he recognizes a malevolent, mystatic cancer that has spread to a whole generation of men and women. And so he says, this is an evil and adulterous generation that seeks for a sign. What is evil and adulterous about it? Asking the Son of God for a sign he might prove himself to be who he says he is. What is so evil about that? Well, it would help to remember that Satan himself was basically asking for a sign back in Matthew 4 during the wilderness temptation. Satan said to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Matthew 4.3 And then a little later, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Verse 6. And then a little later, if you will fall down and worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. Satan wanted Jesus to yield to Satan's demands and Satan's expectations. Each if you are and if you will in Matthew 4 was about diminishing Christ's authority and exalting Satan's authority. That's what's going on when the Pharisees are asking for a sign. And they'll be back in Matthew 16 to do it again. Refusing to believe, refusing to worship, refusing to obey Jesus Christ because he has not behaved in the way we want him to behave, in a way that honors our authority and reason, this Is an evil which men learn from the devil. Take it to the bank. This is evil. We find the same kind of man exalting evil in the demand for a sign in Matthew 27, verse 39. What's going on there? Jesus Christ is hanging naked on a cross, slowly being asphyxiated to death. Dying between two thieves as an offering for our sins, Matthew gives us this report. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. That's this evil and adulterous generation. Seeking for a sign. Here's why it's so wrong. God has already given many signs of his own choosing. As Jesus told John the Baptist, who was in prison, quote, The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Matthew eleven five. And John's entire gospel, the Apostle John, his gospel hangs together on a structure of the signs of Jesus Christ as Son of God and Messiah. Where did he perform his first sign? At a wedding in Cana of Galilee. If men say signs of God's own choosing are insufficient for faith in Christ, then they are boasting, aren't they? They are saying God is not as good to my own reason and my own senses as I would be to my own reason and my own senses. If God were as good as me and capable as me, he would have a sign that I approve of. It's a lie, of course. They are saying that only a sign of their choosing will satisfy. They are asserting, in fact, their own lordship above Christ. This is why it's adulterous. They are in bed with themselves. They are spiritual whores, and the lover that is illicit is their own authority. I will sit in judgment instead of bow before the word of Christ. In fact, those who keep asking for a better sign show they really do not want a savior. They do not want a Lord. They just want to justify their unbelief in what appears to them the most noble of terms. He has not given us a sign sufficient for faith and following. Don't forget, in the middle of this controversy that's being stacked up for us by Matthew in chapter 12, we have the healing of a demon-possessed man who was deaf and mute. And what did the Pharisees say about it? You know, there's a sign. What did they say? He cast out demons by the power of Beelzebul. These men are lords of themselves. Now, because this very evil that we speak of is in the heart of men, we still see it even in our own generation. It appears in statements like this. I could never believe in a God who punishes people by sending them to hell. Behind that is, wrong sign, God, I reject you. It's in effect saying, if God will not meet me on the terms I have set, I will not believe in him and follow him. Another person might say, I could never believe in a God who would allow so much violence and poverty into the world. In effect, this is a way of saying, God must first remove by his power the things I said he must remove before I will believe in him and follow him. He must give me the sign I have chosen. Another person might say, I could never believe in a God who says I am full of sin and that I need a bloody cross to deal with it and that I need to change so much of who I am. This is just another way of filtering and sifting and screening God through all of man's presuppositions. Man is Lord. This is adultery. And it is evil. It is evil because I am clinging to my own understanding as being wiser and more just than God. I am holding God to my terms. In reality, I just want to justify my own refusal to believe I just want to justify my own refusal to obey the word that Christ has spoken. Deep down, I am just looking for ways to justify living as I choose to live, which just makes me the Lord of sin. A sovereign who permits evil doing and smokescreens everything the Lord has said against doing it. Now, there are always false teachers who come and try to accommodate sign seekers. They come and say, God doesn't send anyone to hell, and they gather disciples. They come and say, there there is no hell, and they gather disciples. They come and say, God does not rule over all things. That terrible event, that was outside of his control, and they gather disciples. The false teachers will say, repentance is unnecessary. You can have Christianity without a cross, without blood, and they gather disciples. False teachers accommodate man's unbelief. And false teachers give evil and adulterous seekers the signs they are seeking. Even if they are not miraculous ones, they may be philosophical ones, theological ones, And those sign-seekers will start to follow the false teachers. But where do they follow them to? Jesus tells us in 41 and 42. They follow them right into the day of judgment where the Queen of the South and the people of Nineveh will rise up and condemn them. That's where they follow false teachers to. The Lord Jesus, on the other hand, never accommodates evil sign-seekers. As he says in verse 39, no sign will be given. (laughs) Jesus, tell us what you really mean. No sign will be given. But Jesus does something else. He does something far better. He does not give us what we deserve. He gives us the sign of Jonah. Right after he says no sign will be given, he tells us about a sign. It must not be what we think, and we would be right. What is the sign of Jonah? Here it is in condensed form. The sign of Jonah is that of a preacher who has returned from judgment to come among an evil people to preach. Judgment to them with the promise of mercy should they repent and take shelter in God by faith. Should they refuse, then they will not escape. They will be condemned. This is the sign of Jonah. Now let me take a little moment and put this all together. Remember who Jonah was. How many chapters in the book of Jonah? Every Bible student should know it. Four, how many fish in the book of Jonah? <laughs> one big one. Jonah was the most reluctant prophet in the history of Israel. God called him to go to Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria, a city that stacked skulls outside its gates in a pyramid shape to testify to their visitors how Fierce they were. The people of Nineveh were bloodthirsty and wicked. They were enemies of Israel, enemies of God. But God told Jonah, you are going to go to Nineveh. You're going to preach to them. You will tell them I am coming to judge them for their wicked ways. You're going to tell them they have 40 days. Did Jonah go straight away to Nineveh? Was he a zealous evangelist? not at all. He went in the opposite direction as fast as he could. He ran from the mission. He did not want the wicked people of Nineveh to repent or receive mercy. But God was determined to use this prophet. So God followed Jonah. And to make a long story shorter, Jonah found himself getting thrown off a ship into the sea where he was swallowed by a giant fish. Being thrown into the sea was his judgment. Being swallowed was his salvation. And on the third day, the fish vomits Jonah onto dry land. Jonah then reluctantly trudges up to Nineveh, preaches a bare minimum message of coming judgment, and the people of Nineveh fall under deep anguish about the coming judgment and God's rightness in bringing it and they repent. There is a widespread repentance in Nineveh, leading to the removal of the judgment from the city by the mercy of God. Well, how, then, will Jesus, the Son of Man, be a sign of Jonah to evil sign seekers in a way that is even greater than Jonah? Well, first, here's maybe three answers. First, Jonah did not want sinners to hear of God's mercy. Jesus is far greater. Jesus preached under zeal and sincerity for sinners to hear of God's mercy. Jonah preached under coercion and anger and regret. But Jesus is greater than Jonah. He has zeal to preach so that men would repent. Second... Jonah was cast off the ship into the sea as a judgment for his own sins. Jesus Christ, who is greater, was crucified, was buried in the earth for three days, not for his own sins, but for the sins of his people. And thirdly, because Jesus has been raised from the dead, Jesus has continued to preach after he has endured judgment for the sins of his people. He has come back. He has been exalted. And he continues to preach first through his apostles and now through his ministers. And because Jesus was raised after three days, he can enforce all the judgment of which he warns and enforce all the mercy which he promises to those who repent and believe. So the sign of Jonah is that of a preacher who has returned from judgment to come among an evil people to preach judgment to them with the promise of mercy if they repent. And that is our Lord Jesus Christ. Now in verse 42, our Lord makes a very similar point. Without saying a sign of the Queen of the South, he just goes right into a brief biographical sketch of the Queen of Sheba. The queen of Sheba is spoken of in 1 Kings 10. It is reported there that when she heard of the wisdom of Solomon, the king of Israel, she traveled a great distance, this Gentile queen, to come and sit at Solomon's feet and learn of him. After spending several days with Solomon, asking him many questions, seeing how he ordered his kingdom with wisdom and glory, it says of her, Well, she says herself, and it's recorded in 1 Kings 10, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. 1 Kings 6 and 7. And then she adds this. Blessed be the Lord your God, blessed be Yahweh your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel, because Yahweh loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. What great light has shone into the heart of the queen of Sheba to see the glory of Yahweh in the appointed king, the son of David. How much more glory is in a greater son of David who is greater than Solomon? Why does Jesus say that this queen on the day of judgment will stand up as a witness against this generation who has asked for a sign? He says this because something greater than Solomon has come to Israel. Israel. Solomon was great. The Gentile Queen testifies to how great a gift he was to Israel. But something greater has come to Israel. And the evil and adulterous generation does not need to travel far like the Gentile Queen to see and hear and touch that which is greater. It is right in their backyard. He comes not just to show forth the beauty and wisdom of his heavenly kingdom. But he comes, in fact, to open his kingdom to the sick, to the sinners, to the prostitutes, to the lepers, to those whose soul was ransacked by demons. He has come not just to show that outer glory of a kingdom, but actually bring and make citizens of it. To sit these citizens down at his table, to dress them in his white linen, Yet this generation, this evil and adulterous one, is blaspheming the miracles of Jesus. They are despising the ministry of Jesus. They reject the wisdom of Jesus in his way of salvation. The Son of Man will go to Jerusalem. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They shall put him to death, kill him, bury him, and on the third day he shall rise again. They reject that wisdom of salvation. So the queen of the south, she will rise up on the judgment day and condemn them because they reject right in their own backyard something far greater than what she traveled far to hear and receive. Now there's one more thing, and this is really the title of the message tonight. There's one more thing we need to hear from our Lord, which is spoken to this evil generation. And you can see this very clearly in verse 45. He is still thinking about them as a generation who is always hiding behind their own self-lordship to give themselves cause to reject Christ. In verse 43 through 45, our Lord warns them how their zeal for religion and their zeal for truth, and their zeal for opposing Satan, these things can all turn out to be just slippery paths underneath their feet by which they come under an even greater domination of the devil than they have already been under. That's what these three verses are about. Verse 43. When the unclean spirit Has gone out of a person. It passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. The first reference point for what our Lord has just said in verse 43, for this very state of affairs he has described, is the healing which took place back back in verse 22. Our Lord cast a demon out of a man who was blind and mute. That has been the furnace of controversy ever since he did it with these Pharisees who are now asking for a sign. So this controversy over Beelzebul and whose kingdom this is has not abated. Abated. It's live right now down to verse 43, 44, and 45. So that's the first reference point. Verse 22, But there is a second reference point for what our Lord says in verse 43. And he gives us the second reference point in verse 45. This evil generation. In some way, the whole generation among whom Jesus publicly preached for three years, and by that we don't mean every single soul, but a substantial population. But in some way, that whole generation, To whom he preached publicly for three years, that generation experienced a dramatic decline in demonic activity because the kingdom had come among them. A king greater than Solomon had come, a prophet greater than Jonah had come into the world. You betcha, to put it in Hartley vernacular the demons would scurry. And the throngs of people who came to his door in Capernaum at Peter's mother-in-law's house, asking for healing and the casting out of demons and exorcisms, the king has brought his kingdom. And he is so good, so mighty, so radiant, he is a threat To every opposing kingdom, including that which is unseen in the world of demons. So our Lord is saying, this is what's happening. While he has got his sandals on and his feet are walking on the earth. Unclean spirits are departing from people because of his ministry. And not just because of his exorcisms. We should even understand that the Pharisees themselves have been intensifying their interest in religion, in doctrine, and in law-keeping. You do not find many Pharisees needing to come to Jesus and say, there's a thousand demons in me, can you cast them into a herd of pigs? These men have Humbled themselves into a legal righteousness that makes them look shiny clean. Think stainless steel after your mother has visited. Remember how they started their controversy with him. In verse 2, they said, it's not lawful for your disciples to do that. In verse 10, they said, it's not lawful for you to do good on the Sabbath. They're all into lawfulness and legal righteousness. They even are opposed to Satan, aren't they? When they get into this dispute about the power of Beelzebul, are they not presenting themselves as opponents of Satan and his kingdom? These men are cleaned up because they are in combat with Christ, but he knows that their father is the devil. So here's the point. Christ has come. In his earthly ministry, demons are taking flight, and men's lives are showing a kind of mastery over wickedness. But it is not enough. Men's lives are showing a kind of zeal for religion, a zeal for truth, a zeal for disputation, a zeal for opposing Satan, but it is not enough. It is simply a swept clean house. This is getting interesting. Verse 44. Then it says, the unclean spirit, I will return to my house from which I came. Now understand, when this unclean spirit speaks these words, this is our Lord not telling us about a particular spirit named Freddie who said this. He's teaching us about the dominion... Of Satan. He's setting before us through a part, an understanding of the whole. This is what's going on. I will return to my house from which I came. The spirit has not been satisfied. He is not having an opportunity to torment anyone, to accuse anyone, to defile anyone. And so he says, maybe I'll go back. And when he comes, or when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. What our Lord is teaching here is that a clean house without the indwelling spirit of the eternal God through union with the Son, that a clean house is a juicy target for demonic dominion. The Lord is warning the Pharisees who are speaking against the devil, who are questioning matters of lawfulness, And he's saying, you think you are serious about religion? You think you've cleaned up the place? And he's warning every individual participant who has tasted his kingdom power in the exercise of a demon. He's warning every single one, and he's warning the Pharisees themselves that this entire generation is in a very dangerous place, that they would enjoy touching the benefits of his presence and power and kingdom, but they would not come to him and seek living water from him. They would not ask for him to give them the water he gave to a woman who had five husbands, and the man she was living with was not her husband. The living water, John 7 tells us, is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit must come and indwell the believer because he has believed upon God's Son. He has taken the Son at his word. You are the Christ. You are my life. You are the only life I have before God. And upon believing, what did Jesus promise in John 14? My Father and I will come and make our abode with you. We must have the habitation of the Spirit, not just the habitation of legal righteousness. And this is a warning to all you who have grown up in the church, and some of you are in process of doing that right now,
1: growing up in
0: the church. Our Lord is wanting to keep you from the domain and power of Satan. He's urging you, do not be confused by being a good boy. Do not be confused about being a good girl. Do not be confused thinking that if you just have some outward Christian religion that people can see that you are safe. Beloved, there is no safety outside of the indwelling Holy Spirit, the Father, Son, and Spirit living within you defending you, protecting you, guarding you, testifying to you that the word of Christ is enough. We sang this morning about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, hymn 401, Holy Spirit of Messiah. Perfect title. It is the Holy Spirit of Christ. Christ means to dwell in us and be life to us. He comes to all who have faith in him and does so. Ask him if you are unsure. But do not doubt. The Lord is not waiting for you to do something heroic. As I said when we started this service, even the person who's here tonight who has just rolled out of the bed with a prostitute, the gospel is held out and offered to them, yes. The Lord can cast out Satan forever, tonight, even by faith. Let us pray. Father, we do ask and pray that we would learn all that we need to learn from this evil and adulterous generation that confronted, that lied, that opposed your Christ. Father, we recognize that these are not special, unique men who did this but mortal men like us, fallen sons of Adam, even religious men like us. Oh, gracious Lord, we pray that you would give us ears to hear these things. And if we, are, if we know, Lord God, that you have delivered us from Satan's power and that you have transferred us to the kingdom of your beloved Son, O Lord, we pray that this would swell in our hearts with a lasting thanksgiving and gratitude that straightens our way in this world and takes our hands and hearts off the things that shall indeed come under your wrath. And if we know it not, if we know not the peace that belongs to the justified, if we know not the, the peace that belongs to those who, to whom God has poured out the Spirit and filled their heart with his love. Oh Lord, if we know it not, we pray that you would humble us to the dust, to ask for it, and to believe every word that Jesus Christ has spoken. We thank you that you have been pleased to give men, in generation after generation, ears to hear, to hear the very words of the king who is greater than Solomon, to hear the words of the prophet who is greater than Jonah. Oh, Lord, give that gift to this generation. In Jesus' name, amen.